0: Well, this is uh, uh, just a, a special day you know to to see Johnny up here, Of course, my mind goes back to our times in family worship, where Johnny was a major part of that with all the seven kids it 's like the von Trapp family, you know, and uh, we had wonderful times in worship together. So it's a real joy to be able to to be here with you at this church. I'm so grateful. I felt like even as my wife and I over here is Patty. She's holding little little Scotty Joan. We just set eyes on her Thursday for the very first time. And she is already a very obedient little girl at four weeks. But... uh, We just came in here and I feel like I know a third of you already, uh, which is just amazing. So, thank you for the warm greeting that you have given to us, the warm greeting that you have given to Johnny and Katie as she came here great with child. And uh, God's just been so good. I'm so thankful for the elder team that has called Johnny even to this moment today. And so, just know from my heart, our heart to yours. Our cup is full. You know, sometimes our seven kids are all over and Johnny and Katie are here now with two of our grandchildren. So seven kids and uh, 11 grandchildren. So Scotty was number 11, and uh, so much has happened, and so fast, but we're so thankful to come, be here, at least in Franklin, in the Tennessee area, and just be part of what the Lord is doing in this place. And of course, what the Lord is doing is you. It's it's about Stonebridge, and we're so grateful. So it's truly a joy to be part of this special day with you. Truly, I guess for me, a privilege uh, to preach at my son's installation service for Stonebridge. I would have to just honestly admit to you, it's a bit surreal. I mean, surreal for me to be sitting and seeing him up here and because I used to have him sit with me at the services when I'd preach and if he got in trouble, he had to sit at all four of them with me um, because I had him. And, uh, and so now for me to be in that seat, he's leading and being installed by the elders today is just surreal. Uh, surreal because the Lord called me, I was thinking about it, into pastoral ministry 40 years ago uh, this summer. I was only two at the time, uh, but it was 40 years ago. And, and to see God's faithfulness um, through many blessings and through time of trial, to see and to watch the Spirit's work through the Word of God in so many ways, ways in so many lives over the years, and to watch his faithfulness to my seven children, his faithfulness, of course, to my son, Johnny and i would just personally say to you what more what more could a father ask for to see his son installed as a pastor by these group of by this group of elders to herald the riches of christ is there anything better than that? And I realize, as Johnny just prayed, it is all the grace of God, a calling on a man's life, but this would have not been... Patty and I would have never forced that on any of our children, let alone my two sons. But what a, what a measure of grace to us to be able to be here at this moment. Paul's prayer uh, for the church at Ephesus and Ephesians to God was that he prayed to the one who was able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all we could ask or think. So today I have the special privilege to encourage this church. I'm here to encourage you to encourage my son as he embarks on pastoral ministry at Stonebridge Bible Church. As I look at You, as a church, as I look over and see my son, my prayer is that Christ might be magnified, that God would be glorified, that this church will attain to the maturity and the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that with one heart, that with one mind, that you may become more like the Savior, that you may become more complete In the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's my prayer. Would you bow with me and let's dedicate this service to the Lord. Father, we have sung about you and we have sung about the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, he is the object of our faith. He is the object of our devotion, and it would be our prayer, just as we've worshiped, that Christ would be magnified, that God would be glorified, that this place would become a place where people are redeemed and where they meet Christ and where they grow in Christ and where their families become more like Christ. Father, would you fall on this place and just remind us of a few truths this morning. From the book of Ephesians, and we're going to commit the day to you in Christ's name. Amen. Look over in Ephesians chapter 4. Let me start there. I mean, you would agree if you're going to go somewhere, you'd like to know where you're going, right? You'd like to know where you're headed. You'd like to have a purpose behind the adventure. And know when you arrive and know when you depart. I know that we left on Wednesday. We're here with you on Sunday. We leave again on Wednesday. About a year and a half ago, on a vacation... I uh, took my wife, and we went to see our other son in Seattle, and one day, we took a ferry. We just love the, the boat rides out there, and we got on it from Anacortes, and it was going to the San Juan Islands. It left Anacortes at 11.55 a.m., and we knew that it would arrive at 1 p.m. in Friday Harbor, short time. We took the boat ride, got lunch there, and I knew it was at 11.55 because my wife and I were running to get onto the boat. It felt like we had to jump off the platform to catch it, and we thought we weren't gonna make it, but we made it, and we had a wonderful trip there to Friday Harbor, and then we boarded the boat again at 150, it stopped at a place called Lopez Island, and then it would arrive back in Anacortes at 320. It ran on schedule, it was an absolute blast. But but recently, I read about a cruise line. I don't know if you have heard of this cruise line. It's a cruise line that offers cruises to nowhere, literally. To plan a trip to nowhere, it's real easy. You purchase a ticket, you pack your bags, and you go to no real destiny. You do no research on the countries and the cities you will visit, because you won't be visiting any countries or any cities. You plan no excursions. You board the boat in Norfolk, Virginia, or in Fort Lauderdale, and you cruise to nowhere. Okay. For relaxing, I suppose a cruise to nowhere does have a certain appeal because there's no way to accomplish anything or do anything at all. You live on the boat for a few days and then you return having seen no sights and having gone nowhere. And I sometimes feel when it you think about the the local church, sometimes churches or people can resemble that cruise of a people going nowhere. Sometimes people are just attending. How can you spot a church that is going nowhere? Well, pretty simple. There's no vision. There's no plan for the journey. There's no map. There's no rudder because the church itself, in many cases, the leaders itself, don't know where it's going. And then, on the other hand, and on the other extreme, some churches use all the latest business techniques and marketing techniques, and they've stripped the church from the power of the Word of God. Now, rather than rehearsing the latest insights from secular management or social media or psychology, I want you to open your Bible to Ephesians 4. And I want to just draw out maybe a practical implication regarding the noble purpose of the church. I mean, one thing's for certain, uh, God's given us a guidebook. He's given us a schedule. He's told us what the church is all about. So I want you to know, I'll speak... Maybe briefly to my son, but I more wanted to speak to you as a body at Stonebridge. That's my heart. That's my desire. I could direct it all to Johnny as my son, but I'm under orders today from my son to make this about Stonebridge, okay? And I think that's fair. I want to install him. The elders actually will install him. They will lay hands on him in just a moment, but I wanted to instruct both you as well as him so it's not purely focused on my son in fact it's not really focused on him at all look over in Ephesians chapter 3:21 the purpose of the scripture is very clear paul in his prayer actually in 3:20 says now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us to him that would be God, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. There is the noble purpose of the church. We don't have to think hard. We don't have to feel like we have got the perfect strategy. In fact, when I walk in Stonebridge, what strategy is there to gather all these people at an event like this? for you who have been brought from different places in different times and the church is only five years old, kind of here tucked back in an area. God is mobilizing his people. He has called out the local church and the noble purpose of the church right there is to him To God be the glory in the church. In other words, the purpose of the church is to reveal the character of God, to reveal the attributes of God, to make much of God, to showcase his beauty, to showcase his glory. It is the very purpose of your life that you live, you move, you exist for his glory, that whether you eat or drink, do all things what? for the glory of God, glory is God's, it's in his person, it's bound up in his name, and it's who he is, and so the noble purpose of the church is to glorify God, but you'll see it there in 321, it says, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, And what he's going to describe then in the next 16 verses in chapter 4 is how the church glorifies God. And the purpose of 1 through 16 is actually the unity of the church. So I'd put it this way, that God is glorified in 321 when the church is unified. And so he moves towards unity in chapter 4, 1 through 16. Now, I bring you just to one feature today. Maybe, maybe that's enough. And I want to set your eyes on four thirteen. He says there, until, go back to 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The issue here, if you look back at verse 11, that he gave... Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, he gave those foundational gifts, apostles and prophets. He also gave evangelists, and then it says there in 11, shepherds and teachers. It's best to look at that as just one person with a dual gift. He gave shepherds and teachers. That is the group of elders. And so I just say to you, the group of elders that are here, And Johnny, who will be installed, is a gift given. It's a gift given by Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ wants the church to be glorified. He wants the church to be unified. And he does everything to sacrifice his own life for the church. But he doesn't just only do that. When he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. It's what it says here in verse eight and nine. And as he ascended, he gave gifts to the church. And so these elders, these men have been given to Stonebridge so that Stonebridge might reflect the glory of God bound up in the person of Christ. And so as we, the elders install Johnny this morning, he is given to you to bless this church, to make it more like Christ. But I wanna focus on that one thought there in 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Can we just talk about it here? Spiritual maturity of Stonebridge Bible Church is a maturity of the unity of the faith. Look again at the text in verse 13, until we all attain to. That word until uh, speaks of a goal. It speaks of an end. In other words, you're striving towards something. In fact, in the book of Acts, it's used many times to strive towards a destination. So the cruise line is going nowhere, and that's not true with the church. The church knows exactly what we're to do. The elders, the leaders, the people have been given the marching orders, and one of the features here is a spiritual maturity until we attain, it's till we reach the goal, until we reach the end point or the goal, and it is that of spiritual maturity. In fact, look at the text again in verse 13, until we all attain, and then he says here, to the unity of faith, And you'll note that he's not just talking about leaders here. Look in verse 13. Until we attain, we all attain. It's the church. It's the body of Christ. Say what you want about the body of Christ. But I would tell you this at Stonebridge as we sang and focused on Christ. You are to look like the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That becomes the goal. God is glorified in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the focus of a church is here to attain to this spiritual maturity. Now, let me just be brief. I just want to give four insights to that, okay? I want to talk about unity. I want to talk about maturity, a word on conformity, and then finally, a word on stability, So here's where Paul is going in this text. Look what he says first under unity in verse 13. And this is my prayer for you. Until we all attain, he says, to the unity of the faith. The faith is described, if you will, in verse 5. Remember, it says one Lord, and then it says one faith in verse 5. What is the unity of the faith? Well, it's a body of truth. It's a body of truth in the New Testament that is to be believed. And here the unity of faith is built around the word that speaks of the content of faith. And I think certainly he gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then he gave shepherds and teachers. And what shepherds and teachers do is they teach they teach the whole counsel of God. They teach the body of truth that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Let me say it this way. There can be no unity. There can be no maturity in a church in part, apart from doctrinal integrity. So when Stonebridge teaches and unleashes the word of God, it is developing in you, and if you're a parent, you ought to rush your kids to have them in the hearing of the word of God, because you want to teach them a body of truth that was delivered once and for all to the saints that comes out through the gifted leaders, But I want you to see something. He doesn't just zero in on the unity of the faith. Look what he says in verse 13. He says there, and of, he's linking it there, to the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, it's not just a salvation knowledge. Here that knowledge of the Son of God is really an experiential knowledge of Christ. He's not speaking here about the facts of salvation or just the facts of the deity of Christ. He's speaking here about a personal knowledge. It's the Greek word epinosis. It's an intimate knowledge. So here the faith described finds its fulfillment in the knowledge of God's Son who is the object of our faith. That's my prayer for Stonebridge, is he is the object of our faith. He's what needs to be presented. He's the one that needs to, we, we worship around. He's the one where it says all the law and the prophets lead to him. So it's the knowledge of Christ, but look at the designation of his title. It's the end of the knowledge of the son of God. It is the name given here declares him to have the same nature as the father, to possess the same attributes as the father, and it entitles him to the same honor as the father. In fact, look back just for a moment in Ephesians 1. When you look back there in his prayer, his prayers are so rich. Here's how he prays for the church at Ephesus Here would be my prayer for you, 117, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation, I love that, in the knowledge of him. Paul says it's one thing to comprehend what he did in eternity past in calling you in your identity in Christ, but then he says it's another thing, and he's praying to the Father that he would give to you, to the church at Ephesus there, wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glory inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the, his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised us from the dead. This is how you can pray for your children. This is how you can pray for your church. It's an ever-growing unity of faith that finds its fulfillment in the perfect knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look over at Ephesians chapter three. It's there again, and I think you know these prayers. He prays again, and he's praying in verse 16 that according to the riches of the glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being that, I love this phrase, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. In other words, that he may be home in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ He says, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. This is Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. In fact, Paul's goal, and Johnny, your goal, is look back at chapter 3 in verse 8 Paul speaking personally there says to me in three eight though I am the very least of all the saints this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles here it is the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ in other words his person his his beauty is unsearchable it's it's if you will it's it's Incomparable, it's unfathomable. There is in Christ a great treasure, and so Paul preached the riches of Christ. He didn't preach politics, he didn't preach current events, he preached Jesus Christ. Paul said in Colossians 2:3, in whom, speaking of Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so he's praying for this unity of faith that finds itself in a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Look over just one book in Philippians. I think you know this scripture well. Philippians chapter three and in verse eight, where... Paul says in three eight, indeed, I count everything to be lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, And then remember this prayer in 310 that I may, what? Know him. There becomes the goal. There becomes the destination of the church. And so here a great purpose for Stonebridge is to exalt the Savior, to make much of Christ. But he pushes us to a second item. Look again. In Ephesians chapter four, not only the unity of faith in verse 13, the knowledge of the Son of God, but secondly, to mature manhood. There's the second aspect. It's maturity, unity, maturity, to mature manhood. You say, what what does that mean? Well, it just means to, some translations say, have a perfect man, the word here for mature manhood just simply means to be an adult. It means it's the idea in the scripture of being full grown. And so unity is leading to this, this concept here of maturity, and he's talking about spiritual maturity. In fact, Christ's purpose is to empower this body to lead you, to lead your family, to lead the youth group to spiritual maturity. It, maturity is completeness. It's, its opposite is look at verse 14 of chapter four so that once you come to the maturity, you're no longer children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful scheming. And so here it is. It's to be mature. It's to lead to spiritual maturity. In fact, Paul said, or the writer, at least in Hebrews said in 514, that solid food is for the mature. You know, I think I could just walk in here and tell there's a hunger for the word of God, right? Some churches are about a lot of different things, They're about the programs. They're about the events. Programs and events aren't wrong. They're about everything else but this. The purpose out of the scripture in the New Testament is to be spiritually mature. In fact, Paul said in Colossians, it's him, speaking of Christ, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone, what? Mature in Christ, that's Johnny's desire. That's the elder's desire. What are we doing here? We're we're taking the scripture. We want God to be glorified through Jesus Christ. And, And as that begins to happen, as the body begins to work, it leads to this unity that's based in a body of truth. And it leads to a spiritual maturity to be more like Jesus Christ. Sometimes I laugh. It happened again this year when, uh, who won the Super Bowl? Kansas City. That's right. It wasn't the Tennessee Titans. And there's a part that, that just at the end of the game, I just, I cringe. I'm like, oh. It's, it's when they're doing the ceremony and they're bringing out the Lombardi trophy and they're walking it down the aisle And everybody's trying to touch this trophy and we understand they've been working for months and the Chiefs won it but it reminds me of Lord of the Rings of precious you know and they're and they're all trying to to touch this that they've reached everything once they, they have won the Lombardi trophy listen you can have that as a goal in professional football and the teams are working out right now and they all have one goal in mind and that goal is to win the Super Bowl but listen And in the the identity of the local church, our goal is to come to a place, arrive at the destination of a unity of faith and spiritual maturity. That's his purpose for the church, that you would grow up and be full adults. This ought to be the passion for your children, right? Patty and I used to pray that our kids would exceed us in the faith. That's how we prayed. Not that they would be great academics or great musically. Those are good things. Great athletically. Okay, whatever you want to pray. Lord, would you help them be more like Christ? And Lord, it would be our prayer that they exceed us in the faith, right? There's the goal. They don't have to be in every sporting event. They don't have to go to every single thing that's being offered. But the focus of your family is to produce Christ-like children who live out their faith. And of course, that's dependent on the grace of God. So there's unity, there's maturity. But you might be sitting there thinking, Scott, what does that maturity look like? And I'm gonna go to the third concept is conformity. Look at the text in Ephesians 4.13, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, but then he pushes it out to the measure of stature. Stop there just for a second. What's that? To the measure of stature to the fullness of Christ. In other words, Paul says here, here is the measure of stature, which means full growth or, or size or even full growth in age. And here, full growth in maturity or the stature of fullness. And what does it look like? Well, you can see it. Look at verse 13. The fullness of Christ. Here's Paul's heart for the church. Here's my heart for you. is to not only grow in the knowledge of God's Son, but to attain to the very likeness of Christ in our lives that you begin as a body and you are to reflect the virtues of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. This is what we're after. This is what we do. This is what churches are pinpointing their focus on. It's the fullness of the life of Christ. You say, Scott, that's impossible. Yeah, I think it's impossible until we get to glory, isn't it? But but the role of the church is to prod towards that. It is not to make people feel comfortable. It is not to entertain people. It is not to have cool music, though music is great. It is not to have the best youth group. It is to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ so that you begin to take on his life and his heart and his love and his humility and his forgiveness Your life should be like Christ and all I know is rather than letting bitterness come on his heart, you know it, on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They what? They know not what they do. Listen, I'm telling you, a lack of forgiveness is one of the greatest demonstrations of the flesh. And the greatest one to be glorified is the Lord Jesus Christ. And while they're hurling abuse at him, he prays, well, our life ought to be like him. We ought to strive to be like him. We're going to fall short. We know that. I know that. My wife knows that of me, right? But he's our focus. He's the one we're wanting to be like. If, if it was true of him in Philippians 2.8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a what? on a cross, then it's our desire as we wake up every day to look more like Christ, to talk more like Christ, to forgive like the Lord Jesus Christ. Even when you think of humility, when it says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? Serve and give his life a ransom for many. Listen, as the French would say, the raison d'etre of the church is that God would be glorified and that Christ would be magnified. Don't forget that. You say, well, Scott, I'm single. Praise the Lord. It ought to be your chief end that in your singleness, your life becomes more like the Lord Jesus Christ with every passing year. So Christ is the standard. Christ is the aim. Christ is the goal. Is this not what Paul told the church at Galatia when he said, I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ it says in 419 is formed in you and i see a lot of pastors doing a lot of different things I had a guy recently up from where i live say he was i'm quoting probably verbatim he said i'm really a pastor but i'm a storyteller And I'm a storyteller because how else would you begin to understand the scripture when it was written 2,000 years ago? That's what he said. As though his story is more powerful than the word of God. Listen, Christ is the aim. And so, There's unity, maturity, there's conformity to Christ. Do you remember, probably by heart, Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become, what? Conformed to the image of Christ. Now, we're a work under construction right now. One day, that will be true of us but this is our heartbeat. This is the purpose of the church. It is not to entertain you. It is to mature you into the likeness of Christ so that as he walked, we would walk, that we are to walk as he walked in 1 John chapter 2.6, conformity to Christ through the word of God by the agency of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, Scott, will we ever reach it Well, look back again at 4.13. Until we attain, there is an end date. I mean, can we attain to it? I think yes and no. I mean, no would be we won't get there until we get to glory. But I believe that God's heart for this church, the church I pastor, is for the church to look like and talk and act like the Lord Jesus Christ. At least it says something of our spiritual maturity. Remember when Paul said in Philippians, he said, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of for that which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So there's unity, maturity, conformity, And the last thing is stability. Stability. Here's what would be awesome in this early years of this church. It says in verse 14, here's the purpose clause. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. He wants this church to be stable, okay? Stability is found in not being like a child that's blown and tossed, if you will, all over the map by every wind of doctrine that's blowing through. And it's blowing through by these false teachers with human cunning, by craftiness. They are creating schemes to manipulate people. But here what a church needs to be is it needs to have a doctrinal stability. I was just thinking here on my feet. My wife usually says, oh, no. Um, Years ago, when Johnny was young, we were in Chicago, and we were downtown, and we had to take a taxi cab, and I think we didn't have the twins there. So, I think five of them were born in, was it two years? No, it wasn't that quick. There were five, and I said, Patty, I'm not going to pay two taxis. So I'll get in the front with the guy, and all six of you get in the back. So, we, so we're downtown. Johnny's back there. My oldest daughter, Christine, is back there. And so I get in the front with the taxi driver. And, you know, likely sometimes he's from somewhere in the Middle East, and so I begin to share the gospel with them, okay? I begin to say, hey, where, where's your background? Where are your front? Thanks for taking us. And I, I said, are you, are you Muslim? He says, yes, I am. And I said, well, I'm a Christian. And he said, well, we're just like you. I said, well, tell me how that goes. And I, I start to share the gospel with them. And I started to tell them about Christ. And I, I, start, and I, I would kind of look back at my kids, and they were like this. And so we're just sharing. I mean, it's probably a short ride. And he go, and I said, "Well, you know, Christ is key. Christ is king for us. Oh, we believe in Christ because they believe. They say in the New Testament, but then they add other scriptures in the Quran." And and so I I just beelined it to the cross, and I I started telling him about the death of Christ. And he looks at me after about one minute. He goes, oh, that wasn't Jesus on the cross. I said, that wasn't Jesus on the cross. Everyone knows that was Jesus on the cross in the middle. It's in the scriptures. It's in church history. You can't get away. I said, if he's not on the cross, who was that? This is what they believe. They believe it was an imposter on the cross. An impostor took the place of Jesus, stood in his place, which obviously he's our substitute. So, and and he's beginning to tell me about the imposter. And I I I just I could see it right now. I looked back at the five kids, my oldest daughter, who's a missionary in Albania right now. I looked at her and she was just going like this. I go, Christine, everything? Okay, I think I called on her. She goes, Daddy, that's not what the Bible says. You know, she's probably about seven at the time, eight. And she began to tell him a little bit about Jesus Christ. Listen. As you raise your kids, you want them to understand the distinction, right? You want them to be able to shake their head no when they're not hearing truth, when they're hearing a half-truth. So here, as the church and the body is unified, it leads, if you will, to spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity points to the person of Christ, and when this church becomes more like Christ, this church will be doctrinally stable, Listen, you've been through what we've been through. I live in that funny state of California, right? And we just went through all the stuff as you did with COVID. But I'll tell you, that's just a precursor of what's to come, isn't it? And, and, and as your children grow, they need to know the truth. You need to place them in a place where the truth is being taught, where this word is being upheld, where Christ is put on display. Amen. And I just, I want to do one final thing as I call the elders up in just a moment here. I just want to direct a word to my son, Johnny, and uh, I think my pastor, John MacArthur, read this to me at my installation at a church in Chicago many years ago. And it's kind of my... My charge to you, son, and I don't know who wrote this. I think it's an unknown. If you find it, let me know. I think it sits on John MacArthur's desk, and I've often returned to it. But here's my prayer for Stonebridge. Here's my prayer for the elder team, and here's my prayer for Johnny as he walks up in just a moment to to be one of the elders and the lead pastor here. Here's the statement. Don't know where it came from, but I love it. It says, fling him into his office. Tear the office sign from the door. And nail on the sign, study. Take him off the mailing list. Lock lock him up with books, computer, and his Bible. Slam him down on his knees before text and broken hearts and the lives of a superficial flock and a holy God. Force him to be the one man in the community who knows about God. Throw him into the ring and to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God with, uh, all night All night through. Let him come out only when he's bruised and beaten into being a blessing. Shut his mouth forever, spouting remarks. Stop his tongue forever, tripping lightly over every non-essential. Require him to have something to say before he dare breaks the silence. Bend his knees in the lonesome valley. Burn his eyes with weary study. Wreck his emotional poise with worry for God and make him exchange his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Turn off his phone. Burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets. Put water in his gas tank. Don't do that literally. But uh, put water in his gas tanks. Give him a Bible and tie him to the pulpit. Make him preach the word of the living God. Test him, examine him, humiliate him for his ignorance of things divine. Shame him for his comprehension of finances, Adding averages, political infighting, laugh at his frustrated effort to play psychiatrist, form a choir and raise a chant and haunt him with it night and day, sir, if we would see Jesus. When at long last he dares say the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God. If he does not dismiss him, tell him you can digest the TV commentaries and think through the day's superficial problems. Command him not to come back until he's read, reread, written and rewritten, until he can stand up worn and forlorn and say, Thus saith the Lord. Break him across the board of his ill-gotten popularity, smack him hard with his own prestige, corner him with questions about God, cover him with demands for celestial wisdom, and give him no escape until he's until he's back against the wall of the word. And sit him down before him and listen to the only word that he has left, God's word. Let him be totally ignorant of the downstreet gossip, but give him a chapter and order him to walk around it, camp on it, sup with it, and come to at last to speak backward and forward until he says about it, and it rings with the truth of eternity. Finally, when he's burned out by the flaming word, when he's consumed at last by the fiery blazing Fire, fiery grace blazing through him and when he's privileged to translate the truth of God to man finally transferred from heaven or from earth to heaven then beat him away gently blow a muted trumpet and lay him down softly place a two-edged sword on his coffin and raise the tomb triumphant for he was a brave soldier of the word and ere he died he became a man of God. That's my passion for you as a church and for you, Johnny. Love the scripture. Find your heart's duty to do that. Let's pray, and then I'm gonna call uh, Wayne up here. Father, we love you. We give thanks. We give you praise. Father, thank you for this moment, for these elders, for this wonderful privilege as they lay hands on Johnny to commemorate here at the very beginning his pastoral ministry. I pray that he would exalt the Lord Jesus Christ with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, that he would love you with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you, Father, that there doesn't have to be gimmicks or manipulation. The power is in the word. Make him a servant to your word. Protect him to do such, Father, that this body might grow, that God might be glorified, that Christ would be magnified. We ask this in his name. Amen.